Um, C.S. Lewis's fictional character Screwtape, uh, who was a, a devil, said this. He said, one of our great allies at present is the church itself. Now, what he meant was, if you want to put somebody off Christianity, send them to church. This was what his advice was. He said, work hard on the disappointment or anticlimax, which is certainly coming when people start going to church. So when, when people go to church, he said, make them see ordinary, unimpressive people, make them focus on bad singing, odd clothes, squeaky shoes, and double chins. Don't think he'd been to Kingfisher, of course. Um, make him think the church isn't very impressive. And, and I wonder how far we fall into Screwtape's trap. You know, I wonder how often we feel that church in reality, not the kind of ideal of church that we might hold in our kind of imagination, but the kind of the, the, the reality of bums on hard seats sitting in a cold hall on a Sunday evening reality. It's a bit of a chore. We, we drag ourselves out, maybe out of habit, maybe out of duty, maybe, maybe with an accustomed sense of disappointment. Well, we are in Acts chapter 2. And Acts 2 ends with, in many ways, a very ordinary description of church life. Uh, a wonderful description, really. The last verse that I read, verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And next week we'll look at that and the verses that follow in a bit more detail. Um, but yet, when you look at verse 42, you've got to think, isn't that what we're trying to replicate? In fact, for 2,000 years, it's what the church has been trying to do all over the globe. These simple things, teaching, a fellowship, the Lord's Supper, prayer. We repeat it week after week, year after year. It's the bread and butter of ordinary church life. And what it looks like for us at Kingfisher is gathering each week in this school hall, um, trying to listen to Bible teaching, trying not to be distracted, and we sing and we pray and we chat and we keep trying to do these things. We keep trying to do them throughout the week in various ways. And then we repeat it and we repeat it and we, we do it over and over again. And it, um, it could wear us down, couldn't it? It becomes very familiar and we, we might get complacent. And, and as we get complacent, we might start want, wanting something more or something different. Or, or, or maybe we just kind of settle for that sense of anticlimax. Well, Acts 2, funnily enough, doesn't begin with verse 42. Before verse 42, there is an event and there is an explanation that should transform our perspective on what happens in verse 42. So we will have a look. First of all, there is an event in verses 1 to 13. I guess we might be quite familiar with this. It was promised back in chapter 1. Jesus said to the disciples, wait in Jerusalem, you'll be baptised with the Spirit. He said, you will receive power when the Spirit comes on you. Then he ascended to heaven. And ten days later, the day of Pentecost, a harvest festival, the 120 disciples are gathered in the same place. And verse 2 says, Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. It's more, I think, suggestive rather than descriptive here. Um, you notice he says it's, it's like the blowing of a violent wind. It's what seem to be tongues of fire. It's, it's a, a sudden, overwhelming, beyond description kind of event. It's, it's storm and fire coming from heaven. 
And readers of the Bible have seen this before, of course, haven't we? Now, when God brings his people out of Egypt, he gathers them, he churches them at Mount Sinai. And then there is storm and fire because God descends. And the whole mountain shakes violently. And at Mount Sinai, heaven touches earth. People are terrified there. They can't bear it. And at that point, the whole kind of sacrificial system is instituted instituted um, to allow the presence of God to dwell among sinners. And that becomes the temple. When the temple's built and when it's finished in 2 Chronicles, it says, fire came down from heaven. The glory of the Lord filled the temple. Well, in Acts chapter 2, there is such a filling. Fire from heaven. Verse 4. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. The presence of God fills his temple, the church of Jesus Christ. That's the event. And it's noticed. Um, the sound draws in a crowd. There are these people in Jerusalem from all over the known world. And the disciples are unable to speak in different languages. And the crowd, they see it. They're amazed. They're confused. They say, what does this mean? As some make fun in verse 13. 120 people speaking at the same time in different languages. It's going to seem pretty chaotic. Maybe they're drunk. What does it mean? Well, Peter stands up in verse 14, addresses the crowd. When it says he addressed the crowd, it's the same word used in verse 4 when it says the Spirit enabled the disciples to speak. So, so I think we have to understand that Peter's explanation is a Spirit-enabled explanation. And the explanation comes in two parts, really. There's a, a what and a how. And the first part in verses 14 to 21, what has happened? What is this? Well, verse 16, Peter says, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. This is fulfillment. And he quotes a section from Joel chapter 2. And the first thing that that quotation shows is that um, this event signifies time. This is a, has a place in the great unfolding of God's purposes. In fact, in verse 17, Joel, uh, Peter kind of tweaks Joel's prophecy um, a little bit to draw our attention to it. Maybe bringing in something from Isaiah chapter 2. But he says in verse 17, In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit. This event shows the last days are here. What are the last days? We read on in what Peter quotes from Joel and we see the last days are the period of time before the last day. In verse 20, the sun will be turned to darkness, the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. Now Joel's using kind of um, stock in trade, Old Testament imagery. Um, blood, fire, smoke, sun darkened. It's, it's about the undoing of the cosmos and the end of the age under the final judgment of God. It's the great, the glorious day of the Lord. The clock is ticking. The day is coming. The spirit is poured out. These are the last days. And, and then the second thing that the quotation, the prophecy of Joel says, is that this event is a salvation event. The kind of climax of what's quoted from Joel here uh, becomes the kind of the church's proclamation. We see it again and again. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And saved from what? Well, in Joel's context, it's, Joel is announcing the last day. He's announcing Judgment Day. He's announcing this day of kind of cosmic condemnation. The last day that will be the end of this age, the end of a world broken and ruined in sin. And also that last day will be the herald of a new day, a new age. And those who call on the name of the Lord will be saved from this age. 
into the age to come, into the new creation. And we're to see that those who call on the name of the Lord are those upon whom God pours out his spirit. You see that clearly at the end of Peter's speech. God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. The same spirit that brooded over the first creation is now brooding over God's people in an act of new creation as God pours his spirit out on all people. Not That's all sorts of people. As you see, as Joel says, sons, daughters, young, old, even servants, these all together participate in this great salvation. These all together, they will prophesy. What does that mean? Well, this isn't the the kind of prophesying we see elsewhere in the New Testament. Uh, Elsewhere in the New Testament, we see prophesying is not for everyone, for some, but not for all. But this prophesying explicitly is for everyone. Uh, I guess kind of at its simplest, prophecy is communication from God to people. Uh, And what's happening here is is what um, the prophet Jeremiah foresaw. When he spoke of a time when all God's people will know him with personal relational knowing. It's what Ezekiel wrote about as he foresaw the giving of the spirit to bring this kind of soul to soul connection between God and man. As God pours out his spirit, he's connecting his people to himself. And the result of that connection is a relationship expressed in prophesying. You see, as as Peter speaks, he's explaining what's happened, this event. And the event was this crowd of seeing these 120 disciples bursting out, speaking these different languages. And what are they saying in the languages? Verse 11 says, we hear them declaring the wonders of God. I don't think they're they're preaching really, that they're just bursting out with praise. I think it's similar to what we see at the beginning of Luke's gospel when Elizabeth is filled with the Spirit and she bursts with praise. And then Zechariah is filled with the Spirit and he bursts in praise. And then what happens in Acts 2 is the crowd listen to Peter. And now Peter is clearly explaining to them the gospel by the power of the Spirit. So, so I think this prophesying that is spoken about here is is an expression of relationship with God. It's, a, it's, it's that revelation from God into the heart and the soul of a person that results in praise and proclamation. So Peter stands up. He's, um, he says that this confusing and amazing thing that you're seeing, this is what Joel spoke about. God has poured out his spirit. It shows the last days are here. The last days before the last day. And so all who call on the name of the Lord will be rescued from the coming judgment. All who call on the name of the Lord will be saved into the age to come. In fact, this age has already begun because the Spirit has poured out this this heavenly lifeline. This this, um, enabling of believers to breathe the air of the new creation. That's the first part of Peter's explanation. Then in verse 22 he moves to the next part. And I think what's interesting here is that as he, as he moves to his next part of explanation, he, he zooms in on one particular bit of Joel's prophecy. Uh, I'll, I'll show you this on the screen because I think it might help. This is the end of Joel chapter 2. Um, and, and Peter's just quoted up towards the beginning of verse 32. Everybody calls the name of the Lord will be saved. That's what he just quoted up to that point. Then at the end of Peter's speech, he's gonna, in verse 39, he's going to quote from the end of the verse. 
And, and I think that, that means that verse 22, verse 3 to verse 38, uh, Peter is zooming in on this middle bit of Joel 2.32. On Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there will be salvation, as the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. There will be salvation in Jerusalem. What is it? How does Peter explain this salvation? Well, verse 22. Fellow Israelites, he says, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man. It's really interesting, actually. Peter keeps referring to his listeners as men. It's translated as fellow in verse 14, 22, and 29. Um, so, so in verse 22, he's saying men... Jesus of Nazareth was a man, just, just like you, a man like you, uh, and yet accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders and signs. And the people in Jerusalem, they knew about it. They, no one denied and the remarkable things Jesus did. Yet, yet again, it's interesting that Peter calls the things Jesus did wonders and signs. After just quoting Joel's end of the world prophecy, when he speaks about wonders and signs. Jesus' life on earth marks the inbreaking of the, of the end. And, and Peter says this, wonder-working man, he came in the purposes of God, and by the wickedness of man, he was killed on the cross. And Peter's explaining this salvation that Joel spoke about. How, how is he explaining that this is salvation? Well, verse 24. Uh, he was put to death, but God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death. And, and, and literally at this point it's saying, uh, freeing from the birth pains of death. It's a wonderful mixed metaphor, isn't it? Uh, when Jesus entered into death, the agony of it was a birthing agony, a bringing forth of new life. We've got to keep reminding ourselves that death is not original. It doesn't belong in God's world. Death is decreation. And Jesus entered it. And he emerged out of it, turning it into an act of new creation. And because, as Peter says, it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Let's pause on that for a minute. It was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. I think on the Lord Jesus. Think on him on the cross, bruised and bloodied, his breath kind of stuttering out, his, his chest rising and, and falling and rising and then falling for the last time and his heart giving out as death seized a victim for itself swallowed him up but death had never swallowed one like him it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him and do you know why because the bible tells us that's what peter goes on to say he says that his life was so, so clearly demonstrated he is the Messiah. So what does the Bible say about the Messiah? What does the scripture say? Well, Peter quotes from David. You will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. And, and Peter explains that David wasn't talking about himself. It's the grave of David is here in Jerusalem. Everybody knows about the grave of David. Uh, but David spoke as a prophet and God had promised David that among his descendants would be born the forever king, would come the Messiah. And when he comes, he will not be abandoned to death. Death will not hold him because he is the Holy One. So verse 32, 
God has raised this Jesus to life. And we're all witnesses of it. And it's astonishing. It's a remarkable thing. And we've got to ask, how is this that salvation? Now, Jesus was saved through death into life. Jesus was saved through the destruction of this old age into the life to come. Jesus was saved through death. Jesus overcame all the agonies of death. Jesus was saved because of his holiness. What hope for us then? Well, Peter hasn't finished. Verse 33. Exalted to the right hand of God. That's where Jesus is now. He's ascended up to heaven. So for Peter, it is for us. Verse 34 speaks of Jesus at the right hand of God. A verse, actually, let's, let's wind back a little bit. He's exalted to the right hand of God. In, in the, the quotation from um, Psalm 16, um, verse 25, the, the Lord is at my right hand, speaking of Jesus. There's Jesus right now in the presence of God. And in verse 26, therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. That's speaking about Jesus, isn't it? Jesus' heart is glad. Jesus' tongue rejoices. Verse 28, Jesus is filled with joy in the presence of his Father. Right now, the Lord Jesus is eternally and infinitely happy. Wonderfully happy. And then then we see in verse 34, he's at the right hand of God. He's at the place of power, waiting for the last day when everyone who opposes him will be made subjected to him. Waiting for the day when the the fullness of the new creation will be realised. And in that place, where Jesus is now, the place of power and the place of gladness, verse 33, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. And we keep asking, how is this that salvation? Well, what's it showing us about Jesus? And Peter already underlined that Jesus is a man like us. But now he says he's the one. He is the one who poured out the Spirit. But Joel clearly said God is the one who pours out his Spirit. So this man like us is also God unlike us. He is the one who bridges the gap between us and God. He's the connection. The one who came into our broken, sin-ruined world. He came into our world heading for destruction. And he died in our world and he he broke the bonds of death. And went beyond the agonies into the newness of life. He's the one who connects us to God. And now the man, the God who connects us to God, is the God who pours out his spirit from heaven. The spirit who is God. The, the, The one who is the divine lifeline. Who is the powerful presence connecting us on earth to Christ in heaven. The one who binds up our existence to his existence. So our our path to life is to follow him through death and go beyond into the world to come. Now all of that's concretised as Peter comes to the climax of his speech. Verse 36. Therefore let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified both Lord and Messiah. And and you know why they crucified him, don't you? Because they're just like us. Just like us. They didn't believe Jesus was who he said he was. They didn't want Jesus to rule their lives. They they didn't want what he had to offer, so they wanted to get rid of him. 
That, that's what sin is. That's how we sin today. We don't take Jesus at his word. We don't want him to tell us how to live. We ignore him. We, we silence him. In effect, we wish he were dead. Just like the crowd who shouted to Pilate, crucify him. Just like us, they belong by nature to this crooked generation. Now they, like us, deserve to fall in the coming day of judgment. So when they hear the message, they are cut to the heart and they cry, what shall we do? And Peter says wonderfully, repent and be baptised every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And here is that salvation. All who call on the name of the Lord Jesus are saved. To call on his name is to repent Acknowledging our sin with regret and seeking the forgiveness offered in Christ. And to be baptised as an, an outward des- demonstration of our spiritual participation in Christ. And how does that spiritual participation happen? You will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Not the gifts the Spirit gives, but the gift that is the Spirit. The, the, the gift of the one who is that divine superglue who binds up your existence irresistibly and eternally to the Lord Jesus Christ who has conquered death and delivers his people into the new creation. And the gift of the Spirit he is, is the conduit, he's the, the channel of, of all the saving benefits of Jesus directly into the soul of all who call upon him. And, and Luke records that all who accepted the message were baptised, 3,000 And then what? Well, then we're back at verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Ordinary motions of church life. Ordinary motions built upon the extraordinary invasion of the new creation ahead of time. And the pouring out of the Spirit of God by the immensely happy Lord Jesus. So what does that mean for us? Well, Peter begins his explanation by saying that this event marks where we are in time. The last days ahead of the last day. And there's no space between the last days and the last day. So so this moment that we read about in Acts 2, these last days when God pours out his spirit, the last day hasn't come. So we are in these last days. And when I was a teenager, the pastor at my church loved the hymn with the line, we need another Pentecost. Uh, we don't need another Pentecost any more than we need another Bethlehem or another Calvary. And someone says something like, Bethlehem is God with us, Calvary is God for us, Pentecost is God in us. We don't need another Pentecost. And yet I wonder if we need to grasp a little better that Pentecost has happened. But Acts 2 begins with storm and fire. God pours out his spirit. And then Peter explains this salvation. And and for those who heard, this explanation of salvation becomes for them the cause of salvation. It's not the storm and the fire that saves. It's Peter's words that explain the significance of Jesus Christ. And the result is that those who accepted the message received that gift of the Holy Spirit. You know, and ever ever since that moment, this has been the way that our happy saviour has been pouring out his spirit. Very ordinary. Somebody speaking about Jesus. Not particularly flashy or showy. There's not often much drama. It can look look pretty pathetic. 
And we see that as the early church go out. But Acts 2 just pulls back the curtain. It gives us eyes of faith to see that whenever anybody hears about Jesus and puts their trust in him, the immensity is indescribable. The significance of hearing and trusting it's as if a sudden firestorm rushes down from heaven upon, upon that person in glorious violence as this delighted Lord Jesus claims another soul for himself. And then, when those who accepted the message, what do they do? They devote themselves to the teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread and to prayer, week by week repeating it. The ordinary motions of the church life, the tedious motions. Tedious unless we see it from Christ's perspective. And unless we see that the joy-filled Jesus in wondrous happiness is delighting over his bride. Delighting over his bodies. Pouring out his spirit so that he might be infinitely close to his people. Holding them by the ordinary means of his grace. And, and of course, all of this is about mission, isn't it? It's all about mission. Now how could this not be about mission? Now how could this, this the glory, this this great salvation and the immense happiness of Christ, how could it not just overflow? He pours out his spirit so that his people might be witnesses to the ends of the earth. He pours out his spirit so that people from every language, that, that multilingual burst of praise on the streets of Jerusalem, it's beautiful. Jesus pours out his spirit because he will have the inheritance of nations. And around his throne in all eternity, there'll be people from every tribe and language and nation. How could it not be anything other? I have to ask, oh, that we would see this, this the, the storm and the fire that animates every believer and the gladness of Jesus and the glory of the gospel. But we fall quickly into Screwtape's trap, don't we? If you want to put someone off Christianity, send them to church. If you want to quench the urgency of mission, send them to church. That is, if they only see the ordinary, the unimpressive and the disappointing and the distracted outward forms. This is what Wormwood said in C.S. Lewis's novel. One of our great allies at present is the church itself. Do not misunderstand me. I do not mean the church as we see her. Spread out through all time and space and rooted in eternity, terrible as an army with banners. That, I confess, is a spectacle which makes our boldest tempters uneasy. But fortunately, it is quite invisible to these humans. So will you pray? Pray that we will rejoice in the ordinary motions of church. And when we gather, and we'll do it throughout the week in the various ways, pray that we will rejoice because we have a glimpse of the reality, glimpse of the, the storm and the fire, and, and glimpse above all of the happy face of our Lord Jesus. The one who is enthroned in heaven and by his spirit enthroned in our heart.